0: Today I want our Lord Jesus to be glorified by us seeing his sovereign hand working in the affairs of men. I'm sure that most or all of you know that it was on October 31st, 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany which marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And I and my brethren are determined to remember the Reformation by recognizing it on the last Sunday of October every year. We must realize much of the freedom that we enjoy today comes from what God did through a group of men known as the Reformers. Before the Reformation, the world was dominated by religious and civil tyranny, but the Reformation shook continents as millions in Europe were won to Christ, and the Roman Catholic Catholics lost their death grip on the civilized world. For more than a thousand years, most of the known world was kept under the oppression of priests and bishops and hopes who claimed to represent Christ but were imposters and tyrants the reformation reshaped and redefined governments and religious institutions because of an accurate understanding of God and his relationship to man spiritually and civilly, that that was arrived at through an accurate understanding of the Bible. For centuries, most of the world was kept in the dark through ignorance. I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the year 1000, it is estimated that only about 5% of the world was literate. But by 1650, that number jumped to 40%. And the reason it did predominantly was because of the translation of the Bible into the common man's language. language. Even today, as we pray for different countries around the world, we use Operation World Book to do that on Wednesday nights, you'll find that the, the countries that are dominated by Christianity are much more literate than those who are not. And the Bible where the Bible is widely dispensed, literacy, or should I say, illiteracy, is most broadly erased. Now, the sad part, though, is that today many have not learned or don't have an accurate understanding of history. The story of our past has been changed because men hate God and want to erase his influence. But there are certain times in history when God raises up men who alter international events in such a profound way that God's glory is put on display. And the Reformation of the 16th century was, I believe, the most transformative time in history since Christ and the Apostles. And what I want to do today is to look at a man who lived in what is called the pre-Reformation period, and that is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation, or he was the precursor or forerunner or trailblazer that paved the way for men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and others who were used of God to transform the world. John Wycliffe was the spark that led to the bonfire of the Reformation. Not because he was special in himself, but because God had chosen him for this special time and this special purpose in history. I've been humbled and Studying this man's life, he was way ahead of his day, and he was such a passionate man who lived for Christ. John Wycliffe said, to believe in Christ is to live. Wycliffe was laser-focused on the scriptures being published so that all people could read them. And that might sound like something rather common to us, but... That was a radical principle that, that almost cost him his life and would have cost him his life except for the providence of God when Wycliffe translated the scripture. And he saw that the, the focal point of the Bible was Christ, the person of Christ, and not organized religion in all its mandates and rules. I have... Four characteristics of, of Wycliffe's life. Four things that characterized his ministry and life. Or could I call them four steps to spark a reformation? Oh, dear brothers, if we need anything today, we need a reformation, do we not? And I see four s- steps that sparked the reformation in John Wycliffe's ministry and life as the Lord used him. First, we'll look at the church must publish the Bible or make it understandable for the common man. Second, we'll see that pastors must preach the word fearlessly. Third, we'll see the the word of God must be practiced. Oh, how wicked the the priests and and the friars The friars and the clergy were in Wycliffe's day, and he called them out on it in many occasions. The word of God must not only be preached, but it must be practiced. Uh, Christ's church must be holy, a holy church. But then, fourthly, I see that the propagation of the gospel characterized John Wycliffe's ministry or is the fourth step in sparking a reformation. Wycliffe publicly and with great boldness denounced the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church at a time when Catholics ruled the world and the Pope was the supreme ruler and would not think twice about executing anyone who dared to challenge his or the church's authority or doctrine. Oh, men, this, these are the type of men that we need today. Men who will stand behind the pulpit and call them out by name. By name, call out the heretics. That's what Wycliffe did. And it, wouldn't, it wasn't just in our day that as a man calls out the false teachers by name, it might cost him his reputation or might cost him in some other insignificant way. But Wycliffe did it when it could cost him his life. And he went right to the jugular. He spoke and wrote against the papacy. There is little known about Wycliffe's early years. John Wycliffe's birth date is not exactly known, but most believe sometime between 1329 and 30. And in God's providence, it seems that he was born into a wealthy family, which can be assumed because he attended Oxford, where he began his studies in 1346. But the Black Plague arrived in Europe in 1348. The Black Death, as it was called, or plague, had crushed Europe. By 1353, it is estimated that one-third of the population of Europe had died of the Black Plague or or the Bubonic Plague. And by the time the plague finished with London, where Wycliffe was, more than 100,000 out of 460,000 residents died The victims of the plague would get violently sick and would die in incredible pain. And as young Wycliffe saw tens of thousands of people dying around him, he was forced to consider his own spiritual condition and was driven to the Bible where he found Christ and was born again. Amazing that God used this plague and Wycliffe's life to bring him to Christ. But because of the plague, Oxford was closed from 1348 to 1356. And Wycliffe was not able to earn his doctorate until 1372. But by this time, Wycliffe was already respected as the most able, and this is not an exaggeration, you can read this, I read this from several biographers, Wycliffe was considered the most able philosopher and theologian in all of England. Actually, during the Hundred Year War between England and France at that time, John Wycliffe was used as an ambassador because of his intelligence and influence uh, between England and France to bring peace. He, He was a man of great intellect But more than that, he was a man that had a great passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. And he was not afraid to confront anyone who contradicted the Bible, even if it was the Pope, and even if it would cost him his life, and even if it would cost him his seat at Oxford, which it did. It was John Wycliffe's life passion to translate the Bible into the common man's language. And the Bible that we have in our hands today is the fruit of his labors and his willingness to literally put his neck on the chopping block so that the scriptures could be taken from the language of the clergy, which was Latin at that time, and and few understood Latin, Many of the priests didn't even understand Latin. And he took it and translated so that every person could read and understand the Word of God. This was the foundation. This was the first slab that was laid for the Reformation. Was that the Word of God would be published in the common man's language. This sparked Martin Luther to translate the Bible into German about 150 years later, and many other men who began to translate the Bible into the common man's languages around the world. This was the the spark of the Reformation. It was the foundation to everything else that happened. Going back to the Bible was the solution in the 14th century, in the time of John Wycliffe, and it was the solution in the 16th century, in the time of the Reformers, because it was the solution in the 1st century. Or when Paul was writing to Timothy of the apostasy of his day, or of the doctrinal heresy, or gross error and sinfulness in the church, as many were turning from Christ. What was the Holy Spirit-inspired remedy that he gave Timothy through Paul to remain faithful and push back against the flood of wickedness? We just read it, right, a few minutes ago in 2 Timothy 3:13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was trained in the Bible. And it was that instruction and life-giving word that would preserve him and give him the power to fight against the the tidal wave of, of false teaching and unholy men. We must be wise to Satan's ploys or schemes. And his first plan of attack against the church, whether in the first century, the 16th, or the 21st century, it is the same. It is to minimize or extinguish the word of God. In the first century, some were synchronizing or mixing the Bible with Greek philosophy. Isn't that what Paul told the Colossians in two eight of Colossians? Where he said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. After the rudiments of the world and not after Christ while others were mixing the Bible with the commandments of men, or with the deceptions of mixing Judaism and Christianity, while others were just ignorant of the Scripture. In Wycliffe's day, the masses could not read, and the Roman Catholic clergy had restricted the Bible to Latin, a language that only they could read and understand. But isn't it interesting that there is an attack on the Bible today, but not because people can't read or that they don't have access to the Bible, but the attack today is that the masses of people who call themselves Christian are ignorant of the Bible because most in our society have been trained not to think. Right? You've been trained not to think, but to feel good or to be entertained, right? We have screens. Some people have screens in front of their faces eight to 12 hours a day. What a tragedy it is. We must get back to reading the Bible. We've been trained also to be narcissistic or self absorbed, and that mixed with the postmodern idea that truth is relative, or the truth changes according to each person. So the multitudes in the churches today see no need for a thorough or concise understanding of God's Word. Do you see that's the bigger problem? It's not that people are ignorant of God's Word. Most professed Christians see no need for a precise understanding of God's Word So everything has been dumbed down so that we don't have to think. And the gospel has been reduced to a business scheme in order to fill seats in the church as fast as possible. If we are going to see a change in our day, we must get back to the Bible and understanding it according to what is called authorial intent or or what did the author intend it to mean when it was written I'm shocked that even amongst some men who I would consider brothers just several years ago I found myself in an argument that they were defending the fact that there's multiple interpretations of scripture how tragic there's one interpretation of Scripture. If someone wrote you a letter, say your boss wrote you a letter with specific instructions, he had an intent when he wrote that letter. And your job would be to find out what he means when he wrote it. Not to translate it into what you think it means, but what did he mean? What did the, 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 the one who wrote the Bible mean? It doesn't matter what it means to me until I understand what it meant to the person who wrote it. And the person who wrote the scripture is the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that leads us to understand that only the scripture interprets scripture. And the pastor's primary duty is to preach the word, but I think he should be training his people even inadvertently training them to understand how to interpret the Bible on their own. There are just several simple steps. You don't have to be a theologian or a scholar to understand Bible interpretation. But there are simple steps that you can take, that as you're reading your Bible, you can understand what it is saying. In the beginning of 2 Timothy 4, which is the continuation of verse 3. And moving on to our second heading, we see the importance of preaching. First, we see the importance of publishing God's word so that the common man can understand it. Second, we see the need for the necessity of preaching. And there, look in 2 Timothy 4, if you would, there we see the, the charge, the, the pastoral charge that the Apostle Paul gives to uh, Timothy. And he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The apostle brings Timothy to the judgment seat of Christ. This matter is of such importance that he brings Timothy to the most solemn place where one can stand in judgment before Christ, and he commands him upon Christ's authority and Paul's apostolic authority that the pastor's first job is to preach the word in season and out of season or when it feels good and when it doesn't when everything is going well and when it has turned upside down there is never a time when the pastor should not preach the word with reproof, rebuke and long-suffering and doctrine in John Wycliffe's time, the priests were given to the administration of sacraments and performing the Mass, and their primary task was not to preach the Word. And Wycliffe said, and I quote, Preaching is the pastor's principal duty and highest service. Christ himself was a devoted preacher, and the pastor must imitate his Lord. If a pastor neglects preaching, they are like those who murdered Christ. Wow, what a severe indictment. Preaching God's word faithfully is not a luxury, or it is not optional. But when those who lead the church fail to faithfully preach the word of God, they place themselves in the same category as those who murdered Christ because the Lord Jesus is dead to those who are not confronted with the scriptures. We must publish the Bible or make it available and able to be understood by the common man or teach them how to properly interpret and reverence the Bible. Pastors must preach the Bible, not their own opinion or experience that is detached from the Bible, but the Bible properly interpreted. And third, the pastors, and, and all saints for that matter, must practice the Bible. The Lord Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Not only were the leaders in the churches and Wycliffe's day, neglecting the preaching of the word, but the neglect of the Bible will always lead to an unholy life. As I read and listened to biographies of Wycliffe, I would not even mention some of the sins. They are so vulgar, committed by the priests and the friars of that day. They were wicked men, and they were bilking the poor for every last penny. John Wycliffe said, A pastor should live holy in desire and thoughts and in a godly lifestyle. End quote. The pastor of the 21st century is a man with a charismatic and magnetic personality and, and often a polished orator, but few consider. His holy or unholy life. Read the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and you'll find that almost every one of them has to do with the man's preaching. Right? Is that what the qualifications have to do with? The man being a good preacher? No. Almost every one of the qualifications in those chapters have to do with the man's character. And oh, how often today we say, well, that man's a good preacher. Certainly he's fit for the pulpit. And his lifestyle or his his holiness is overlooked. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if you wanted to turn there in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. And the Puritans would say, if you want to know, the holiness of a man, you know who you ask? His wife and his children. Ask his wife and his children. They'll tell you the real story, right? Because we can all put a show on publicly, but when we're at home, the real me comes out. And they're the ones who know the most about the man. But in First Peter 1, 15-16, the scripture says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Oh, how the holiness, how, how our, our lifestyle has been so jettisoned in the modern age. Even Amongst those who call themselves Calvinists, the, amongst the new Calvinists, the, the primary, I think, identification, identifying factor of them is their unholy lifestyles. Is that there's no emphasis on how we live. They claim to be puritanical, they, they claim to be following the Puritans, and the Puritans would be ashamed of what most of the Reformed Church looks like today, as much of the uh, young and Reformed and restless, as they've been referred to, have unholy lifestyles, but yet are deep into their high theology. And may it never be with God's people. People say, well, they have good theology Good orthodoxy, just bad orthopraxy. And I say, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? (laughs) Good theology will always lead to good practice. And if it's not leading to good practice, it's not good theology, no matter how high-minded it may be. Oh, the calling into the ministry is not only a high calling because of the responsibility to be faithful in the preaching of the Word of God, but the standard of holiness is high, or the preacher must be a living example. It was Robert Murray McChain who said, my greatest need as a pastor is to be a holy man. And boy, that quote is is stamped on the front of my mind And in and, and all many studies and things that you're doing, but all let us remember that we are called unto holiness, called unto being like unto Christ. We read it in 2 Timothy 3 at the beginning of verse 10. But thou hast known my doctrine and manner of life, Paul told Timothy and Paul was admonishing Timothy to take heed to what he was saying, not only because it was according to God's word, but also because what he was saying was validated by a transformed or holy life. And oh, I would like to break that down for you, but for time's sake, I'll just say that our holy life is directly correlated to our love for Christ. Christ to our love for Christ. instance of my disobedience, I can always trace it back to my lack of love for Christ. Oh, dear Christian, if we need one thing, we need more love for Christ. We need to see more of our own wretchedness I need to see more of the fact that I should be in hell right at this second. I am so vile. But yet Christ died for me. Yet Christ rose again for me and is seated at the right hand of God, ever making intercession for his saints. And that contrast between our wickedness and Christ's grace in saving us, will always draw our hearts to love Christ more. To love Christ more is what we need. And I think many lack and say, oh no, no, I don't want to hear about my sin. That will make me depressed. Mm, I get concerned for people who talk like that. For the true believer? Oh, we hear of our sin and wretchedness and yes it does cause us to be to to grieve. But what does it always do? It causes us to run to Christ. It causes us to see more of his glory. It causes us to see more of his love for us. And as we're enveloped in his love, we are thrust into obedience. Praise his holy name. The apostle went on to articulate what a holy life looks like. And he mentions those inward qualities or character traits. And the the, the holy man will, will always fall under persecution. Paul said, you know what manner of life? And then he said, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. These places where Paul was severely persecuted. In verse 12 of our passage, all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He did not make exceptions. The people of God in this world are hated. The man who is holy is hated. Or who makes it his life's aim to obey God. And this obedience is not because he is trying to earn heaven, but true obedience can only be birthed out of, I already mentioned, a love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Every good that I'm doing detached from my love for Christ is vain and useless and pointing me in the wrong direction even. But oh, loving Christ... And obeying out of a heart of love is where true holiness comes from. Wycliffe, John Wycliffe on several occasions was summoned before Roman Catholic councils to be tried for heresy. But in God's sovereign will, his life was preserved by a a prince named John of Gaunt on one occasion, who was the son of uh, the King Edward the third, the king of England. And in God's providence, the king on more than one occasion used Wycliffe because of his superior intellect to argue against the demands of the pope. At at that time, the pope was demanding taxes from England. And I mentioned to you earlier that Wycliffe was used in the the Hundred Year War to, to bring peace. And he was used by the government to go to the pope or to write to the Pope, explaining how he had no right to exact their taxes. And, uh, and, and, but at that time, King Edward III and Pope Urban V were at odds with each other because of the Pope's demands for payment. And again, God intervened in circumstances. And in, seven, in 1378, that, where there were two Popes. At that time, what were called the Great Schism. Again, he was summoned, but because of this great schism, one Pope in Avion, France, and one in Rome, and they were too busy fighting with each other to deal with Wycliffe. On another occasion, there was a great earthquake when Wycliffe was summoned to appear before the Roman Catholic Council that certainly would have sentenced him to death. However, because of Wycliffe's persistence in denouncing the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church, he was expelled from Oxford and banished to spend his last years under house arrest and pastoring a church in Lutterworth, England, just a few miles outside of London. And it was there that he wrote most of his works, and it was there that he finished his translation of the Bible into English. And it was there that the Lullard movement began and spread that we'll get into in a few minutes. But his most popular book was called On the Church. And his thesis was that the church is made up of the elect chosen by the pure grace of God. And that the church was not what it uh, digressed into, an organization of wicked men who Fought for political power. The thing that specially made Wycliffe angry was that the offices of the church were being sold to the highest bidder. Oh, but moving on to our fourth heading Wycliffe was a man who believed in the propagation of the gospel. John Wycliffe said, a pastor should live having God's law and gospel ever on his lips, end quote. Wycliffe was on the cutting edge of his times. This idea of preaching the law with the gospel was adamantly or steadily defended by the reformers because it is biblical. But yet it started back in Wycliffe's day with him, the church had lost its biblical use of the law to bring sinners under the conviction of their sin so that they would turn to Christ, as the church today has lost its biblical use of the law. Right? What is, what is the use of God's law? Many, the unregenerate view is, is that we can be made right with God, right? If I obey God, then I'll be made right with God. Well, turn with me to Romans Chapter 7, and I bring this up because this was the backbone of the Reformers' message. The Reformers went back to the law and the gospel. And you may have heard me preach before on the law and gospel. When I was here last time, I did a whole teaching on it that was in January in, in your Sunday school hour. But I think it is supremely important. That you cannot preach the gospel without the law. The greatest deception over the last 150 years in modern Christianity is that the law has been left off with the gospel. It's the pattern in the scripture. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, look what he says I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust. Except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupience or evil desire. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Oh, the apostle said in verse 9 that he was once alive without the law. This was a man who was the son of a Pharisee who was the son of a Pharisee. The first words that came out of his mouth as a baby were most likely God's law. That's how the Jews would teach their children from the youngest of age, as they were commanded in Deuteronomy, to teach them the word of God, the law. What did he mean? What did Paul mean when he said that he was once without the law? And I put the question to you. Are you without the law? Some might answer and say, well, I know God's law. The apostle knew God's law. He was thoroughly trained in God's law, in every aspect of God's law, yet he says he was without the law. Are you without God's law? Am I without God's law? Paul knew the, the outward demands of the law, but knowing the outward demands of the law is only a superficial or starting point or carnal or natural understanding of the law. But to be born again, we must come under the spiritual use of the law, which is first to show the glory of God. The first thing the law does is show us the holiness of God. But secondly, in Romans 3.19, if you're in chapter 7, you're just one flip of the page from 3.19, Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, here it is, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. God uses his law to stop the mouths of men, Every one of us were, were talking, right? We were talking before the law came. Or we are trying to justify ourselves by the law or by manipulating God's law to make it appear that we are keeping it. But when the Holy Spirit teaches us the spiritual purpose of the law, we come to see that we are condemned by the law. We are condemned by the law, legally and morally. We are condemned legally because we have all violated God's law outwardly. Or we have broken God's law in our actions. Oh, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and convicts us of our sin, there's a problem far, far, far worse than your outward violation of God's law. And you know what it is? It's your hatred of God's law. You hate God's law. I hate God's law. Is that not what he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not at enmity with God. It is enmity with God Because the carnal man mind is enmity with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Oh, we're we're legally condemned because we've outwardly violated God's law, but we're morally condemned because we have broken God's law in our heart. That's the problem. The law is for who? The law is for lawbreakers in first. Timothy 1. That's who the law is for. It's for those who naturally break it. I didn't have to be taught to lie, right? When I was a little boy, I already knew how to lie. I had to be taught not to lie. I didn't have to be taught to fight with my brother. I already knew how to fight with my brother. I had to be taught not to fight with my brother, right? Because wickedness is what's in the heart. This, the violation of the law in Matthew 5 is first or primarily Inward. It's inward. The apostle mentioned the 10th commandment in Romans 7, 7 because it is the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, that proves that every one of us has this inward problem. There is nothing outward about coveting. Coveting is the desire to have what is not ours. Or it is really the desire to find satisfaction out side of God. That is why we cannot understand the demands of the commandments until we understand the first and the tenth commandment. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me because we're idolaters by nature. And the tenth commandment, covetousness, because we want everything but God until we're converted. Oh, has God done this work in your heart? Has God not only shown you that you're an outward violator of his law, but an inward violator of God's law? And that I am completely condemned outside of Christ. That I have no hope outside of Christ. But praise his holy name, we have great hope in Christ because of Christ. The essence of the problem is that our hearts are filled with lust and anger and greed and covetousness and pride and jealousy and all manner of wickedness. And when the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, we are shocked by the degree of our wickedness. Not because of what we have done. Not because of what we have done. But the law has shined a light on our inward corruption. And I went from saying... I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy, to saying, I hope no one is as wicked as me. That is the sign that the Spirit has done this work in our hearts. And we see that our only hope is Christ. Praise His holy name. And without this revelation, our repentance is only... Superficial. This is why the reformers, this is why John Wycliffe went back to the law and the gospel. There is no gospel preaching without the preaching of the law and used in its proper way to bring men under the conviction of their inward corruption, of their total depravity. John Wycliffe preached the whole gospel, the depravity of man through the law, and that he was influenced by other men in that time uh, who who were few and far between. Uh, But Christ never leaves his church without a true witness. There were several men who influenced Wycliffe, but it seems the one who influenced him the most was a man who lived from 1290 to 1349, a man named... Uh, Thomas Bradwardine and he, his uh, Augustus Toplady, many of you probably know who Augustus Toplady was, uh, the, one of the great hymn writers of the 18th century, said this about Thomas Bradwardine. He said, Thomas Bradwardine was the greatest English theologian of all time. <laughs> Quite a statement. Bradderwein's most known work was a book that he wrote about the sovereignty of God, and in that book, he was opposing the Pelagianism of his day. Many of you probably know Pelagius was a man who lived at the time of Augustine, and he was a false teacher that denied the doctrines of total depravity and original sin, and Augustine debated Pelagius on more than one occasion, and we can see Augustine's influence in Branderwine and also in John Wycliffe. Augustine taught much on the sovereignty of God and Wycliffe spoke often about the sovereignty of God's grace also or, or the sovereignty of God's grace in the salvation of sinners or that salvation was not by sacraments or by the works of men or that it is not just a cheap decision of man but that salvation is by God's sovereign decree. Or we who are in Christ have been elected by God, not because of anything in us, but purely and only by God's grace and that his salvation by grace is given by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and that this power will produce real spiritual fruit in our lives by his grace. And if we're going to have the gospel on our lips, we must have the law upon our lips. As I already mentioned, Wycliffe was a man greatly used of God, or he was the morning star of the Reformation because God used him to publish the Bible. He knew the importance of preaching the Bible and the common man understanding it. He was a man who practiced the Bible and saw the need for holiness. And he was a man who propagated the gospel or spread the law and the gospel from his pulpit. And his legacy that he left was that he taught others to do the same. Some of you are probably familiar with the Lullard's the Lollards were a group of men and women who were raised up after and at the end of Wycliffe's life. And they went into all the world preaching the gospel. They were really the starting point of the Reformation. John Wycliffe died in 1348. And there was a group of men and women who continued to hazard their lives for the name of Jesus Christ after his death because of his influence and as I mentioned, they were called the, the Lullards. It's kind of hard to determine why they're called the Lullards. Some think because of the German word lully, that means that we get our word from lullaby, that, that they, they, they were men who would sing, and, and so they were called the Lullards. Although I believe with the theory that they were called the Lullards because it's the Latin word for mumblers, They were called the mumblers by those who who reviled them. And uh, it seems to be uh, consistent, does it not? Just like the Methodists were named by their enemies, and many other groups who God used greatly were, were given terms of derision, but ended up being... Uh, used for the glory of God. And it seems to me that the Lullards were called the mumblers, but they were a devout group of men and women. Some who say their influence lasted shorter periods of time, but from what I can see, their their influence lasted for up to 200 years after, after Wycliffe died. And, and men like John Huss and Martin Luther were influenced by the Lullards. This is the main reason why we call Wycliffe the, the, the morning star of the Reformation. Wycliffe's enemies thought that they were putting an end to Wycliffe's career when they removed him from Oxford, and they did end his career as a professor, but in God's providence, it was those last years of Wycliffe's life in Lutterworth that God used him to finish the translation of the Bible and to train other men who would go and plant other church, Christ-centered churches. One biographer wrote, and I quote, the Lollards were one legacy of John Wycliffe. He views where another, along with his condemnation of certain Roman Catholic dogmas and practices, the lasting legacy of Wycliffe would be his reclamation of certain doctrines from Scripture, especially that the church was the body of the elect. Scripture was the sole rule of life for the church, and preaching the Scripture was the primary means by which God saves and sanctifies sinners. The legacy would continue through his writings through assimilation into the 16th century Reformation." End quote. You see how Wycliffe didn't just preach and wait for other men to get involved, but his preaching inspired other men, and he, he trained them and, and sent them, even though he was not under, officially under any institutional church. God used him in this way, miraculously. And in conclusion, we live in dark days. Evil has been called good, and good has been called evil, But the days of Wycliffe, in some ways, were darker than ours. At that time, it seemed like the entire church was corrupted by money and and, and hungry tyrants. And yet, in the midst of it, God preserved a remnant or a small group of people that God kept faithful to his word. And John Wycliffe knew that the answer was to get back to the Bible, or to get the Bible into the common man's hands. And we have the same task before us today to teach people the true meaning of Scripture. Not some watered down or distorted perception of the Bible, but as the apostles did in Acts, they taught the whole counsel of God. And we need to get back to the expositional preaching of God's Word. Or we need men who will boldly and accurately hazard their lives to consistently preach the Word and make it an impossibility. I say in Upper Derby, they've heard me say it more than once, if God doesn't grow this church, I don't want it to grow. This church will only grow by it being an impossible means of growth. We refuse to use the modern methods of changing our music, of of, of changing the preaching, of of trying to draw people in by getting to know what they like. And even though we reject that seeker-friendly type of approach, dear brothers, it can affect us. Right? It can affect us. And we must deliberately reject it. This gospel is impossible to receive. You can't believe the gospel. It's too radical. It's telling you you never did anything good in your whole entire life. Who's ever going to believe that? It's telling you that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. And that he's God. That God became a man. How can you believe that? How can the infinite, eternal, almighty God put on flesh? Can somebody explain that to me? biologically or mathematically? No, you can't. It's impossible. It can happen. Except that God decreed it, and it did happen. And we believe it because it's been revealed to us. We need to preach an impossible gospel. We use means to build a church that are impossible. And only God can do it. We're waiting on Him. This is what Wycliffe did. He did not go along with those of his day. And say, oh, I better soften it up over here or the, or the Roman Catholic council is going to come and kill me. He said, let them come and kill me. I'll preach the gospel and leave the results in God's hands. This is an impossible mission we're on. Impossible! God has to do it! And certainly God had to do it in Wycliffe's day. It was an impossibility in his day. It was one man verse, versus God the enormous Roman Catholic machine that would crush anybody that got in its way. And yet God used this one man by his grace. And there were others around him. But in this case, he predominantly he was using Wycliffe. And he, and he was raised up. And he was the spark that fueled the flame Of the Reformation. And dear brothers, we must get back to publishing the Bible. We have a different mission, do we not? We have the Bible in our hands, but how the masses who call themselves Christian are ignorant of the Scripture. They must be taught the Scripture and how to interpret it and how to understand it. And the pastors must fiercely and and consistently Preach the word. Preach the word. And the word of God must be practiced. Practiced. These things are are, are real in our hearts. They control how I work, how I live, how how I treat my wife, how I raise my kids, how every part of my life is affected by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are holy people and we must propagate the gospel. Oh, we must, I believe, eye up young men. Eye them up and and, and put them into the ministry. Train them. Encourage them. Older men. I ask you, older men, who are you discipling? What young men are you discipling? How many young men are you discipling, should be the question, if you're an elder of this church or if you're an elder in my church. How many young men are you discipling, is my question. Oh, I think it's a great lack in today's church. Dear older men, mature men in the word, find a younger man who's, who, who you can disciple. And fathers, disciple your sons to do the work of the ministry. And we pray that another Lullard movement will be raised up as the young men and women are set aflame for Christ. Oh, we are in desperate need today. We are in desperate need of a reformation. And may God, by his grace, raise up men like Wycliffe and the men that came after him who hazarded their lives for Jesus Christ. And what else could we do? Because Jesus Christ hazarded his life for us. Right? Christ hazarded his life for us. And what did he gain? Us. Right? He got us. Doesn't seem like he got too much, did he? He got the bad end of that deal, I think. But we get him. We get him. We get all the glories and riches of Christ as joint heirs forever and ever. May we gladly say, I'll lay down my neck on the chopping block. Let me be next so that we can preach this radical gospel and that it will go forth into the world. And I pray that by God's grace, we'll see another reformation that is so desperately needed. Amen. Please bow with me in prayer. Holy Father in heaven, O gracious God, Who can do these things? What man is fit for these things? Certainly nobody. This is impossible God. You must turn our nation. You must turn our region, our city, our towns Lord God. You must turn us to be as those great men of the past who gave up their lives who laid down their life that the gospel would go forth. Lord give us that spirit. Give us that passion. That love for Christ that would say I'll Nothing else matters but that Christ's name be propagated. Oh, work these truths in our heart. And, Lord, touch those who don't know Christ here. Would you save them, Lord? Bring them to salvation to see their utter destitution without Christ and the glory and riches of knowing him. Oh, may this word sink into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.